Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Private Equity Masters is brought to you by PitchBook. Deciding where to allocate capital is challenging for even the most seasoned fund managers. The margin of returns between a good and great investment can be wide, especially in the private markets, so you need access to the best fund data available, and that's PitchBook. 93% of PitchBook's clients say their fund data is better than any other provider. PitchBook also publishes first-rate research on all aspects of investing in the private markets. You can explore PitchBook's data and research today by signing up to get free limited access. That's free limited access to the largest database of private market intel. To sign up, visit pitchbook.com slash capital allocators and see how PitchBook data can help give you that extra edge. Private Equity Masters is also brought to you by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. ILPA is dedicated to engaging, empowering, and connecting limited partners to maximize their performance on an individual, institutional, and collective basis. It also hosts Voices of Private Equity, a podcast featuring leading voices from private markets that delves into the most pressing issues facing investors today. In its first season, the podcast held candid conversations that revealed each guest's personal journey in the industry. Rate, review, and subscribe to Voices of Private Equity today. Today's show is sponsored by iConnections. iConnections' software platform seamlessly connects managers and allocators for virtual meetings, giving managers the ability to subscribe and share information with allocators who can efficiently select and meet managers all on one platform. The scalable technology powering iConnections can be used for bespoke events by managers, allocators, and service providers. Visit iConnections.io to learn more. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. 
Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. Over the last decade or two, no asset class has generated as much interest and investment dollar returns as private equity. This eight-part miniseries, Private Equity Masters, is a set of conversations with some of the longtime leaders in the space. We'll hear their stories, those of their firms, and their perspectives on this all-important area of the capital markets. My guest on the fifth episode of Private Equity Masters is Virginie Morgan, the CEO of Eurasio, a publicly listed asset manager that's one of Europe's leading private equity investors with more than $26 billion in assets, including $8 billion in permanent capital across private equity, private debt, and real asset strategies. Our conversation covers Virginie's background, transition to private equity, and Eurasio's rich history. We discussed the business strategy under her leadership, long-standing emphasis on ESG, European focus, investment strategy, and outlook for Eurasio going forward. Please enjoy my conversation with Virginie Morgan. Virginie, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Why don't we start at the beginning and would love to hear your path clearly through investment banking to where you are today and maybe even earlier if you'd like. Oh my God, my ass would be plan. <laughs> okay. Earlier, daughter of four brothers, that's important in the story and you know who I am. <laughs> Loved by many men, but at the same time, you know, treated like I should be. So I've got a very strong character. So it all started, I was born in Lyon in France. And very early on, I started moving around, studied in Italy, came to New York to work. I've been working also in Asia, discovered, you know, Taiwan, Korea, Hong Kong. I wasn't even 20. So that has had influence as well, for sure. I absolutely love Asia and I feel very comfortable in Asia. And the U.S. was my first work experience. I started as an intern at Lazard. And wow, best time ever, like working like a dog, partying crazy, sleeping three hours a night, discovering it all. I was probably 20. So that's sort of the beginning. And then linearly, I mean, I worked basically 17 years at Lazard and I loved every of it. And then I quit, like literally, but there's reason for that. I quit after 17 years and I joined Eurasio. And Eurasio, that was at the end of 07. So I've been there for the last 13 years you know, in different positions. But, uh. Take me back to that stretch at Lazard. You were very successful very early on. What were the skills that you felt worked for you to become a partner so early on in your career? I was well, hardworking, you know, disciplined. You do what you say, you say what you do, you deliver. You're going into detail, you know, specific, you're really providing great support and, and, you know, safe harbor to your partners, you know, they can rely on you. So all of this has to you know, be there, of course. But, but there's this other layer, which I think I brought is I was the only one at that moment to have started in New York, then worked in London, 
And then I finally joined Paris. Not that I really wanted to go back to Paris, but Lazard was that house with that strength and that reputation in Paris. So I thought, you know, you have to be spending time there. But my point is, I was the only one very early on, I was probably 26 or 27, to have all those collections in the three main Lazard houses, which at the time were different houses. It wasn't merged. It wasn't one bank. It was three different banks, just with this, you know, Lazar Frere, Lazar Brothers, and Lazar Frere. And um, they hated each other. They were competing <laughs> with each other. And I mean, the Brits were, they were the Brits. And the French were looking down on the Brits. And the Americans thought they ruled the world. And, you know, those Frenchies, you know, not obeying and not following the rules. But at the end, you know, I created bridges. That's for sure, because I like working with bigger team of international culture and background. And I certainly helped a lot in merging the three houses, renegotiating all the economics of the partners, and also finally working within Lazard to prepare the IPO. So that helps because you're really dealing with the very core of what makes a partnership. And you create trust, determination. <laughs> you have to fight. Because, you know, get all those partners together, align economics, their vision of the future, you know, one brand, one name, one PNL. That was interesting. So I was doing this on top of the rest and following, you know, clients. I think that helped. And being a woman, but an outspoken woman sort of helped as well. I mean, they actually quite liked the idea. There wasn't that many women, you know, still not many. It makes a change in the way people interact with each other and in the atmosphere. And uh, a lot of partners actually like working with me. So outside of your upbringing with four brothers, what was it that about you and your path as a woman where you saw success? And as you mentioned, like far fewer others are alongside of you in that path. I was raised by a working mom. A doctor, she's a doctor in law and she's a doctor in uh, science. I never thought being a woman was a problem because I was raised in that sort of environment where men or women doesn't really make a difference. You just have to work hard, respect people, you know, have your own values and exercise your judgment. I had no idea that being a woman could be a problem because I was never raised with that thinking and I had my mom right there, you know, working just like many other male uh, doctors around her. So that's, I think, a big thing first, because you're not thinking it's a problem. <laughs> I was actually thinking quite the contrary, to be honest, because I thought you're different. You're bringing something, a new energy, a new way of expressing, having people work together. It's sort of fun and at the same time very serious. So it wasn't really never for me an obstacle. Of course, I could see clearly that there wasn't that many women staying. It's not that they were not hiring women as analysts or associates, but it's such a hard work. And I don't know, for some reason, we were losing a lot of women along the way. And that's the big hurdle. Keep the women. Make sure that for different reasons, they feel welcome, love, the infrastructure, in a private equity firm or a bank is made also for them. It's difficult when you come back from a maternity leave because you, you, you know, half of you is sort of disconnected and half of you doesn't really see that. So there's a lot of psychology 
and a lot of support and just the mindset. So promotion, pay rise, the way, you know, it's not because you disappear for two months and a half that you can't get the same promotion, the same pay rise, because if you deliver in nine months while others deliver in 12, then good for you. So it, it was never really for me seen as either a problem or an obstacle, but it was all about hard work. And I couldn't see really the difference between, you know, my male friend, associate, analyst, and us, I mean, we were just working a lot and have no life and uh, continue <laughs> to try to smile. And that's investment banking, isn't it? So after that run of 17 years, you alluded to quitting. What was that change in your path that led you to want to do something different? Okay, you're going to smile on that one because it's a funny story. Because I quit because of private equity and I joined a private equity firm. How bizarre is that? But I know I'll elaborate just a little bit. Well, okay, 17 years is a long time. And I learned a lot. I loved Lazard. I still do. It's really, I've got great admiration for banks like Lazard who really, you know, make a living on advisory. So everything that we do from morning to dusk is about advising best our clients. So what I love there, and that explains then why I wanted to go to private equity. I loved working for the same clients over so many years. I worked for Air Liquide. I worked for Danone. I worked for Kingfisher. I worked in the luxury sector. Because it's not just about doing a transaction. It's about strategize, really being on the side of your CEOs and advising them as best as you can for the future of the company. Not dissimilar to what we do as investors. So, I mean, there's two types of bankers, you know, the transaction, you know, led and, and then, you know, the more strategic bankers, client relationships. Why would private equity get in the way? Because remember 2004, five, six, seven, like a craziness of private equity. And it was less about client relationships as bankers and more about securing a mandate with, you know, whoever was trying to buy whatever assets. And I thought, you know, this is too transactional for me. I mean, I like to be more building over the long term. Also, I had my third child, Arsene. So I had, you know, one who was four, one who was Margot, Jean was two, Arsene was just born. I was working like crazy. I had no time off. I sort of had time off, but I didn't have. And I thought it's sort of more difficult than I thought, although I was a partner and I've been a partner and nominated partners very early on, uh, like I was 30. But it's normal because your clients, they're working on the deal of their decade or their life. So they want you, but they don't understand that you have 10 clients like that who want you at the same time. So it's not because you have your young, you know, one month boy in your in your arm, they're happy for you. They're asking about our things, you know, is he doing well? But then immediately they jump into their deal. And you're thinking, okay, so if that's going to continue like this, I would rather do this myself. I would rather be the decision maker. I would rather be you know, the game changer in sectors that I want to promote, invest in, be the decision maker, not just the advisor. And that's, it became so clear. I quit in like a week. Although I loved it, I really did. It came like blue sky. I thought, okay, well, here, my, here I am. This is private equity that I need to do. So you joined Eurasio, which has just such a rich history. 
and I thought it might you know, tied to Lazard as well. I, I thought it might make sense to talk about what Eurasio is. Yeah, thanks for saying because sometimes I say you know it's that very old and highly respected lady because Eurasio was born at the end of the 19th century in 1870, and Eurasio was an corporate an operation we were owning businesses running gas and water in France. So gas, A-O, so gas and water, and then progressively evolved into more of an investor type of holding company. We were owning real estate. We were owning big stake in public company, Danone, Air Liquide, you know, many others, but more passive. Then there's been a number of uh, merger between different entities, Dura France, Gazeo that led to, you know, Azeo, then Eurasio. Long story short, Eurasio as a private equity investor was, it's about 20 years. I would date 2002, 2003. So we basically sold a number of the historical assets, either real estate or public companies that we, we had, and we reinvested into more private equity-like businesses. So 20 years ago. And that was just, at the time, the investment of the wealth of the company itself. So we say we invest our own permanent capital, our own balance sheet. But then came the change about six, seven years ago, which is a fabulous acceleration for us to go into managing third-party money alongside our balance sheet. So if you go back six or seven years ago, as you're bringing in or starting to bring in outside capital... How big was the balance sheet? The balance sheet was probably you know, about $3 billion. It's now about 8 And there wasn't any outside capital, maybe $500 million, maybe $600 million. And now we're managing, including the balance sheet, because I keep saying Eurasio is the largest client of the GP. We're managing $30 billion. And that's quite singular in our industry. We did that through organic, hiring team in dedicated sectors, pool of talent, but also buying existing GPs to accelerate that transformation. Because when you have a balance sheet or actually publicly quoted shares as well, because I'm a public company, you can build your transformation through an M&A as well, which I did. How did you think about, as a public company, the capital allocation process, because you have this balance sheet that you can invest in deals, but you also can do acquisitions of managers and create new strategies. What was your thought process in how to deploy the capital? I'll tell you one story, Ted. I joined, so I resigned in, in September of 2007 from Lazard, and I joined Eurasio in January 2008, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I discovered like everything at the same time, what it was to be a private equity investor, those LBO structure, covenant cash constraints, liquidity issues, and then come in the midst of the great financial crisis. And I learned fast. You don't have time to learn when you're straight into 2008, 2009. What I learned and what I then applied to the development of Eurasio to your question as capital allocation, I had too many eggs in just one basket at the time. So I've been working on diversifying my risk as a GP for my public shareholder, but also for my clients. 
And that we've really done successfully. So I'm way more diversified. I've got mid-large buyouts. I've got small buyouts. I've got VCs. I've got growth. I've got private debt, which is growing fast. So that has been about diversifying our risk and as a consequence, protecting the value, the share price for my public shareholders. And that has worked great. And to be honest, last year, COVID-19 coming, I was stressed. I was worried. I'm the CEO. But when you test live what you've been building over the last four or five years, so of course you're stressed because you know this is the moment. But then you're so proud to see that it worked 100%. Of course, the share price dipped for like a month and a half. Who didn't, in a way, besides some of the tech companies? But we dipped and not long. And now it's, we're back to all-time high on share price, on results, on assets under management, on net asset value. So diversification was one answer. Internationalization. We were way too French. And to my earlier story about who I am and what I like and where I've been working, when I joined Eurazeo, I thought it was a great platform, a great name, great professional, but it was way too French. And it was not about you know, strategic thinking, it was just about my own appetite for such a too French company. And I thought, if I do well, I can probably internationalize Eurazeo and we can become a a bigger player, but more importantly, it's not just about the size, but a more international player to be serving better my portfolio companies, my CEOs, my partners, and of course, my clients. And that's what we did. And that has been amazing. The second office I've opened after Paris is Shanghai. And convincing my team that Shanghai was the place. And it was not about London. It wasn't about New York yet. It wasn't about Frankfurt or Berlin, and it was certainly not going to be Hong Kong or Singapore. It had to be Shanghai with a Shanghai-raised, born, educated team. Yes, it would be a bit of a challenge, but uh, yes, we had to do it. And we started now. We have 11 offices, 10 continents. We have 300 people. We were like 30. But it's not, again, not the size. It's the culture. It's the reach. It's a client coverage. Now, you know, we've got many clients in Asia, many in Europe. And that was my learning because we were at the time quite French, limited number of investments. So I didn't have that capacity to really face what I call VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. These days, as a CEO, as a management team, you have to operate into that VUCA environment. Everything is volatile. Every day is a new something. The new normal, we don't know. The uncertainty is everywhere. You know, market correction. The complexity is enormous. Things are ambiguous, like geopolitical environment. There's some form of nationalism at the political level, country level. But at the same time, the companies are very much getting more global. So I think we have been playing this role, this a very much of a stabilizing force for our portfolio company, for our clients, for my team. And the private equity, I think, has that role to play in the future. So that's where I've been deploying, in a way, the strategy because of those learnings of 08 and 09 
that you just couldn't rely on too few, too local investments. So as you thought through that diversification and globalization strategy, how did you think about effectively the buy or build decision with team members? I remember the first acquisition, which was in 2011, which is now our small cap investment strategy. What brought us together with Olivier's team and Eurasio was ESG. We were very much into ESG already at the time. I, was, I, Virginie, was very much incarnating the diversity and the gender. One of my partners at Eurasio has left since then was very much about climate and environment. And that's quite early on. I mean, we're in 2005, 2006, 2007. And Olivier and his team, the company was called Offi Private Equity. They were very much on the same line on ESG. So we started talking because it's years ago and not many GPs were spending time on ESG back then. Long story short, fast forward, you know, we have great values in common. We see the world the same way. Their shareholder can't continue to support them. It's a public company. We take it private. We buy it and we fully integrate it into Eurasia. We change the name. And Eurasia as a client starts investing balance sheets in the fund. Now, you know, we're raising a billion euro fund, uh, AUM probably three. We bought a company which was probably managing 250 million, so it's 10 times bigger. The team is still there, retention 100%. We've grown the team, of course. So that's one situation where you get to get together because you have something in common. You have common values. Then we did subsequently some other acquisition. I did invest, which we did um, two years ago, three, uh, was very strong in venture and tech. I could see that I needed expertise in tech. I didn't have it in-house, but it was coming. It was very clear that that market, especially I mean, worldwide, but also in Europe, was going to emerge and accelerate very fast. So what do you do? Either you go organic, takes time. You have to hire probably a team of three or four. But if they've not been working together, LPs would not give you credit immediately. A little bit of a first-time team, first-time fund type of uh, reaction. And I'd invest, they had a majority shareholder and he wanted to sell. So we immediately positioned ourselves, Eurasio, to be partner. We negotiated the acquisition of 51%. I mean, we had synergies, which, you know, I, I never thought I would say that by acquiring a GP, you would effectively derive synergies like, you know, some of your portfolio you know, do when they buy. But we did because we gave birth to the largest growth fund in Europe. I mean, there's only two growth funds in the European Union. I'm leaving the UK aside, and there's a bigger player there, north of a billion, and we are one of the two. And I could never have done this on my own. They probably could have never did, done this on their own. It's the combination of IDINVEST and Eurasia, which gave birth to that amazing track record, amazing team, and leadership position in growth capital. So I want to talk a little bit over onto the investing side, maybe a nice transition is you have your legacy team and strategy, you have a couple of acquisitions. Is there a common strategy that constitutes kind of a Eurasio type deal across these different 
sectors of private equity? It's probably not a common strategy, but it's certainly a shared vision of where we think the world is going. So you could be um, the team investing in venture, or you could be part of the team investing in a mid-large buyout. You have healthcare in common. You have software as a service in common. You have tech and high growth business model in common. The VC team would do checks of 10 to 15 million. The mid-large would do checks of 400 to 500 million. But the shared vision of the emerging leaders and winners, not just post-COVID, but over the last four or five years, healthcare has been prime on our top of the pile uh, investment strategy across all the teams. So the theme would be common because it's being sought at the leadership level and then shared with the team. Values, ESG, commitment, expertise that we bring to every of our portfolio companies. So when we invest, there's no situation where part of the due diligence is not, there's not an ESG diligence. Then we come in and there is an ESG grand plan with every of the company in which we invest. Could be diversity, could be supply chain, could be uh, carbon emissions, could be women, could be just governance. But there's a before and an after Eurasio in terms of ESG. Very clear. So if you're part of Eurasio, you see ESG and carbon neutrality as very core to what you do. So you don't think in terms of Okay, yeah, we have an impact fund right there on the side. We actually have impact funds and we will have more. But we also think as being an impact company, everything we invest in has to have some form of impact and be as positive impact, planet, diversity, people. So that would be more this, I would say, that we have in common. When you think of us in terms of private equity investors, we go from VC to mid to large. Not that usual. When you think of the structure of the US market or even in Europe, you have you know, strong VC players, strong growth player. Of course, the big guys operating in mid to large and extra large LBOs. I think it's very competitive advantage that we have under the same roof. That competence across the maturity of the companies and a lot of my tech investments are working like commercial relationship with my largest investment, more mature, more classic companies. So we're making all the bridges in terms of technology, mindset, attitude. So the VC and the growth companies are being connected and work commercially with the large cap and the small cap portfolio. That's quite special in terms of making the synergies happen on a very sort of commercial approach um, between the companies. Entrepreneurial, I mean, we're very entrepreneurial. We're not just investors. We are hopefully great investors. We're brand builders. We are business builders. We, are, um, we like to build not only our own companies, but also the companies in which we invest with that very entrepreneurial mindset. Hence, why I wanted to be way more international than in a way what you expect a mid-market private equity firm to be from a global perspective. That's our mindset. From this long roots in Europe, there is this sort of 
Europe from the inside out with this globalization. And I'm curious, what's different about private equity investing in Europe than it might be from, say, the U.S.? It's probably not that different, meaning in terms of how the team operates and the type of talent that you find in private equity teams in in Europe or in the U.S., a lot of talented people, a lot of expertise, commitment, engagement. The market is different because there's not such thing as the European market, as you know. I wish, but it's way more complicated. So being a good investor in Europe takes many decades of operating in France, in Germany, in Italy, which, you know, I'm just putting UK aside. I mean, UK is the largest market. Then come France from a private equity size standpoint, then come Germany. And then Italy is probably number four, but a long way behind. So Germany, you know, the German penetration, extremely difficult, very local, very federal, a little bit like in the US, but even more complicated. So being a European player, you have to have a very diversified team, very um, European team to cover better the market, especially if you're doing smaller deals. It's a market which I feel, although it's my home, I feel a little bit more difficult to penetrate. Which schools have you been going? You know, who have you been raised with? Who are your friends? What are your network? How do you exercise your influence in order to secure a deal? That's sort of different in the U.S., which I quite like, to be honest, because you're, you're not awaited, of course, in the U.S., because it's competitive, it's mature, it's been, I mean, the private equity was born here. But the doors are sort of open. If you have something to bring to the table, it's open. And you're not known for who you are, you're known for what you've done. When we came in, Eurasia wasn't known as a brand. But the investment we had done in Utelsat, in that sector, in the satellite industry, oh my God, were you the one to do Udelsat back then? Montclair, luxury and fashion, of course. You know, Montclair, everybody knows that deal. And then, you know, you connect the dots. Montclair is your ASEO, so you get respect for what you've done, what you've built. I like the U.S. market because it's very deep. So it's a complicated market to cover because it's so large. So the way we've approached it was to come with a very disciplined approach and choose our battle, the sectors we wanted to cover. So we have to be way more specific in sectors or area, because otherwise you get overwhelmed and you lose track of yourself. In France or in Germany, there are smaller markets. It's my home. I know the market inside out. It's like swimming in a pound compared to swimming in the Atlantic. So if you swim in a pound, you know your home. So you know exactly the deal that you want. So you put all your energy into that deal. It's probably 18 months down the road or 24 months or three months, but that's yours. In the U.S., very different. So um, I quite liked it. I think the U.S. is an enormous market of innovation in our industry. I'm very curious as a person. I think you have to look at your competition with great admiration and respect because they're very strong. And that market, that's where the innovation emerges. You know, new products, new asset classes, new needs. I learn a lot from what I see in the U.S. 
And the way we do deals, it's funny because the management team have less of a say in the US than they have in Europe. That's a big difference. They're less incentivized. And that was a surprise. They're less incentivized in terms of management package. So they less have a say. They're less important in the equation, which I find peculiar. In France, they have a very heavy weight. Like they could literally block a transaction, even if they only have like 10%. So that's a difference, but it's as long as it goes. At the end, the team laugh when I say that, but you invest in Italy, in Germany, in France, in the US, in Denver, in Houston, in Minneapolis, it only gets two serious bidder at the end. And it's usually the case that you end up where it doesn't matter where you started, with 100 books out there or just 10, always end up with two serious bidders. And that's where you have to make your difference. So when you came into the U.S. in a very competitive market, which sectors did you choose to participate in? We came in a consumer because of some of the big success that we had in consumer and brands in Europe. And actually, I have now also a dedicated team of investors called Brands headed by um, an American professional, Jill Granoff, who has spent 15 years at Estee Lauder, you know, 15 years in beauty, 15 years in fashion. And she's heading the brand team. So it's a team of 10 professionals now investing in uprising brands, fashion, beauty, uh, home, uh, wellness, sports across the US and now in Europe. So we've made about 10 investments, not about 10 investments in the US and in Europe. That works quite well for us. And now you see us spending a lot of time in tech and software. Software as a service, you know, the latest deal, Elemica, is one tech, so our new platform like Trader, which we partly sold to car sales and Australian strategic buyers. And also we're building our competence and team in, uh, in healthcare. You mentioned working with operations professionals on your team, lots of them. How do you integrate the operational playbook once you own a company with the investment team? You said it, playbook. We're very disciplined, so we're, we're very much following our playbook, 100 days, 200 days, you know, milestones with our team and also our senior advisor that we, so we tap into our pool of competence depending on which sector, what issues, our ESG team is part of those 100 days and 300 days, you know, milestones, playbook, same thing. Sophie is heading my ESG team. We have um, a sort of big and small team at the same time. It's big for a private equity of our size. I've got five full-time professionals only doing ESG at Eurasio. I would need much more. So what I do is that I work with a you know, very large ecosystem of professionals in ESG. could be climate could be diversity, could be governance, could be social protection. So that's how I would say we work. Day one, very disciplined. Don't waste a day. Just don't waste a day. And that's where sometimes I get crossed and um, lose my temper because time is not our friend. We know that. Not that we have to exit fast and certainly not your asylum because we have we have time, you know, we can be very long term and at Montclair, we kept Montclair and, you know, the last exit we made 10 times our money, we kept it nine years. 
Moncler is the age of my fourth child. So Moncler is the age of Annie, so nine years. I closed down the day after I gave birth. And then we saw the last stake that we had in Moncler, she turned nine. So we've been holding that investment, exiting progressively, of course, IPO and then some exit, but nine years. And we made over five times our money. So I'm not saying time is my enemy in terms of duration of my investment. I can hold on long, but time is your enemy in accelerating the change. And you know those times where you were making your money just on deleveraging the company are long time gone, as you know. It never happens this way now, so you have to bring significant value adds to the portfolio company. You're paying those companies pretty high multiple. It's not changing. So if you don't have that vision of where you want to take the company, what build-ups, what new countries, what deal in China, what commercial partnership with Korea, what other businesses as a second engine of growth you want to build, so what M&A, all of this has to be done so fast because we have no idea what we have ahead of us in that very unpredictable environment of ours. And COVID-19 was just another example. If we needed one, never came, you know, nobody would have planned anything of the like. It's just that you always have to be on your two feet, very agile, very fast, always prepared to react and don't lose a day with your portfolio company. So that's the playbook really. If I understand what you're saying right, it sounds like a lot of that playbook is focused, let's just say, on the revenue side. Where can you grow? Where can you expand internationally? How do you think about growth versus cost control? Okay, you nailed it. We are a growth private equity investor. <laughs> it's true. However, you have to be paying attention to the cost of the companies in which you invest, but that's that's not where we think we make returns for our clients. We make returns in uh, choosing the right sectors, then in those sectors, finding what we think would be the best player in that segment, and then accelerate their growth. That's what we want to bring. Could be M&A, could be digitalization, could be commercial partnership, could be a new country. Uh, China has played a great deal in what we bring to our company the team that I have in Shanghai is not an investment team. I do not invest in Chinese companies directly, but a lot of the companies in which we invest through our funds, our investment strategies, we push them and we help them to build their presence in China. In many sectors, and just to name a few, like hospitality, healthcare, luxury, and I'll stop that because it's probably 70% of any GDP China is the big engine of growth. So if you don't make it there, you're losing in terms of a massive opportunity of growth. So China, we try to be smart because I'm not big enough to have that coverage that maybe some other of my competition have because they're running you know, $400 billion AUM funds. So we did it street smart. We made a partnership with CIC. CIC has selected a few GPs in the world, not as an LP. I mean, they're LPs across the board with hundreds of GPs. But here I'm talking about a bilateral relationship, a strategic relationship. And they chose us, Eurasia, for continental Europe. And that partnership is about helping companies that they co-invest through a fund alongside us, 
European companies to accelerate their growth in China. They're opening doors. They are helping us to get regulatory approval, to get uh, clearance with some you know, trade, to find people, hire the right person, like real operational boots on the ground, help from CIC. I mean, what can you dream of a better help in China? So yes, to your question earlier, we're more into growing our portfolio companies. Sometimes it doesn't unroll as we wish. <laughs> you wouldn't trust me if I was saying everything goes always as planned. And then we have to become more of a cost-cutting, cost-attention. Um, we do work on cash flow. We do work on working capital. We do work on optimizing the cash, of course, even if it's, we're investing in high growth. But when you're right on your judgments and your decision-making on either a sector or a company with that profile of growth, you make your return on that. I'm curious how you think about time horizons. You started with really all permanent capital, and then you evolved to having outside investors. How do you think about that optimal time to invest in a company in your exit strategy? Not very differently than my competition, I would say. It's just that I have more freedom if I want to think differently. So that makes a hell of a change because if you're free, to think that you can decide if you have good reason to do so, that you can hold on longer, then you have an advantage to your competition. Like you don't have to sell Montclair just because you're thinking on five, five years or three years and a half, even worse, because you have to raise your next fund. You can hold on to it much better. And if you have a strong conviction, then you hold to your conviction and you show to your your client that this is the right thing to do. Keep it for longer to have a better return overall. So that freedom has an enormous value. But overall, to your question and being honest, we don't hold our assets much more longer than my peers. It's probably a year longer on average. But you, you would see me selling also investment after two years and a half if I have a good reason to do so. Have you found that that frame of mind or that time horizon shifted at all to shorter once you brought in outside capital? I think it's not the outside capital which has this consequence because our clients are just like us as you as you as an investor. They want they want their capital to be invested. That's what they're here for. So those equity bridge line and all of this, you know, they understand why it's there, increase your return, but, you know, they want to be caught. And if they like the company in which they're invested through your fund, you know, they would rather continue the journey with that company because that has been performing very well. However, the pressure comes from the fundraising cycle because you show to your clients a performance, but if you don't have DPI, if you don't have exits, like the real moment of truth, not just a reevaluation through your um, four times a year exercise. You need to show them exits. So in a way, sometimes clients should probably think, okay, you know, I've been with this team for a number of years, decades. I don't have to push them to exit to trust that their next funds will be great. So they do their job well. They can continue to hold on to some assets, no pressure to sell. And that's okay for the next fundraising that the DPR is not like, you know, 1.5 times. We just have to find that balance between us as clients and GPs 
so that as a GP, you don't feel pressure to be showing exits and results. Guess what? When you have to show exits, you sell your best asset first. The other balance you have to strike, which Eurasio's had for a long time, is as a public company, having shareholders and investors. How have you thought about that tension? And really, how has the business been managed over such a long period of time where your competitors that are public, it's a much more recent phenomenon? There's no conflict of interest, I don't think, between a client coming into our fund and my public investors. I have to generate value for all my stakeholders. For my LPs, it's IRR, cash on cash, ESG, full value transformation play uh, through a fund. And for my public investors, it's about, that's more of a challenge. It's about transforming these successful returns into the share price. And sometimes the share price has that volatility, which is a little bit disconnected from what we effectively realize in terms of performance in our funds. Because I'm publicly quoted, I'm part of an index. Sometimes I'm compared to a bank or a financial institution. So some investors sometimes want exposure to the financial market and, and sometimes not. So, but over a long-term period, there should be no disconnect between the share price appreciation, value creation, and what we do for our clients as LPs in our fund. So as you're looking out over the next 5, 10, 15 years what does Eurasio look like? We're still you know, at the cutting age of ESG. So I don't know what that takes over the next 10 years, but a lot of expertise and effort and investment. Because this is here to stay. That's what our clients want. That's what our companies want. And that's where I think we should be heading as, as people, as investors, as nations. We will be certainly more global. That's quite us. We understand that market. This is us. I would like to have built chapter two, three, and four, because you're saying 10 years of my US book and expansion. We've only written chapter one, started at the end of 16. It's been um, amazing. You start from scratch. Nobody knows you. They don't even know how you pronounce your name. So you build, you build, you build. You're proud of who you become, who you hire. I love that term that you find at the Silicon Valley, which is this exponentiality. Exponentiality is all about aligning the planet. So I would hope that in the next 10 years to come, we would have aligned so many planets in terms of who we are, what we bring to the industry as a very diverse team, very gender balanced, very ESG committed, great professional, great returns, that I would have a very significant presence, a relevant presence in the US to bring our point of view to bring our way of doing business with entrepreneur and management team. So I'll build teams. I'll maybe also convince great GPs in the U.S. that they should join us, join the Eurasio platform. We have a lot to bring, not just the balance sheets, but a lot to bring to great partners who are not afraid of sharing the control of their GP for the sake of uh, you know, being better at what they do and being part of a you know, greater story, backing great U.S. companies that see the world to be their home, and they understand that it's not just with U.S. US GPs that they can make it happen. They have to have a window on the world with professional investors like us who understand Europe and China. 
So even the path to hopefully exponential growth, as you say, has bumps and twists and turns along the way. So what do you think some of those challenges will be both for Eurasio and the industry as a whole? Well, people, you know, battle for talent. That's tough. It's an industry which is attractive, pays well, exciting. You're learning a lot. You're on many fronts. You're meeting only great people. You're lucky, basically. You are, it's hardworking, but you learn every day. So it's attracting and you know, great talent. And at the same time, because this is growing so fast, and I think it's only a start for very obvious reason of long-term low interest rate, of uh, volatility of the public market, of uh, disappearance of the banks in terms of financing, like you know, classic banks. So private debt, private equity, real estate, infrastructure will continue to grow very, very, very fast. So the battle for talent is going to be a big challenge. So and it's not just about the money, but it's also about the money. So if you can't completely compete on the money side, then you have to compete with your own assets. Who are you fundamentally? And assuming that you can provide uh, a very decent compensation package, the rest would be way more attractive. You know, the mindset, the working condition, a big topic these days, more for you know, investment banking than for, for private equity, but still the values that you carry the incarnation of who you are. So Eurasio, what is it, Eurasio? It's diversified, it's modern, it's 3.0, it's young, it's forward-looking, it's entrepreneurial. So that helps. If this is us, and if this is us tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, like you lead in that modernity and in that forward-looking, and you're challenging yourself all the time and changing all the time, you have this capacity probably to attract talent not just on money, but on what you're offering to them. You know, you want to be part of it. So that's a big one, I think, retention of talent and hiring the right people. I don't know whether one day, because we're becoming so big, if one day we'll be in the eye of government regulation or... Because uh, when the shit hits the fan, you have to find someone responsible for it. So during the great financial crisis, the banks. Thanks God, during COVID, we've all well behaved. We reinvested where we had to reinvest. We've been supporting our people, our companies, taking care of our people, reinvesting in the companies. Because I was concerned and worried that we would be held responsible if something was going to go wrong, just like at the time of the great financial crisis. And I also like to say that that's when you have the strength and the power and the size comes with its responsibility, you have to behave. You have to invest in your people. You have to invest in ESG. You have, you're like a public corporation. Comes with your size, very large span of responsibilities that you have to be aware of and really carry. So um, I think that could be a bump on the road because the bigger you will get as an industry, the statistics are not very well known and they're not very well covered. But ballpark companies which are under ownership of a private equity owner account in the US, in the UK, in France for about six to nine percent of GDP. 
that's big. I mean, it's an industry per se. So as an industry per se, we need to get organized as an industry. We have to have a motto. We have to behave properly, provide decent environment, values, condition of work, not just to our team, but to our, the team of our portfolio companies. And the impact is absolutely amazing because you have that lever that you can exercise, which is really exciting of making a big impact through your portfolio company to change the way people think and act and manage. So that's another maybe concern or, or wish, or maybe a little bump on the road. But you know that we don't know what would be the bump because we don't know where it's coming from, but it will be coming and you have to be agile and reactive and entrepreneurial to be weathering whatever comes next. Great. Well, Virginia, I want to I ask you a few closing questions. So first, what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I like to go to my fishing hut in Myanmar, uh, Burma, Myanmar, with no connection with the world, with my husband and my four uh, teenagers. Terrific. What's your most important daily habit? Uh, that one is not fun. I look at my share price. <laughs> oh, boy. How about your biggest personal pet peeve? Running out of time. And how about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? Okay, the day after closing, things change. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> what two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Oh, my dad, for sure. And um, one of my um, economics professor at university, second year. Why? He so loved what he was doing. He was a banker at Citibank. He was full of energy, quite good looking, although I thought he was very old. I think he was 32 or something, and I was, whatever, 17. <laughs> I liked the guy. I liked his energy. I liked the way he was conveying that love for what he was doing to us, and that's when I decided I would become an investment banker. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Values, uh, respect, hard work, for sure. But at the same time, joy and family moments, for sure. So, like, do your thing seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. All right, Virginia, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Okay, listen to your heart, not to people, even your best friends, because you're the only one to know yourself as best. And uh, innovate, move on, change, you know, path. You know, don't be afraid to fail. You know, what does that mean, fail? Get out of your comfort zone. But more importantly, listen to what your heart is telling you. It's usually quite right. Virginie, thanks so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure, Ted. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time.